Welcome to the Astronaut Philosophy Podcast. I've got a special treat for you guys today. Dr. Harry Heft, an emeritus professor of psychology, is going to join me. I promised a further conversation on evolution and perception last episode, so that's what we're going to get into today. I've got his book here in front of me. It's called Ecological Psychology in Context. And I found it a couple years ago, and it got re- got me really excited thinking about the the story of psychology as a science, and the way we've come to see uh, the human mind not as just this disembodied uh, recipient of absolute truths, but uh, as uh, something constrained by evolution, by our, our animal bodies, shaped by our animal needs. Uh, essentially, his book is about the legacy of uh, William James, who was the father of American psychology, a professor at Harvard, and he developed the ideas of pragmatism and radical empiricism, and these, in turn, uh, informed J.J. Gibson and his theory of affordances and ecological psychology. Now, if you don't know what any of that means, that's okay, we're going to get into it. Um, just a quick word on Dr. Heft before we start. He is a fellow in both the American Psychological Association and the American Psychological Society. Um, He sits on the editorial boards of the journals Environment and Behavior and William James Studies, and he's a book review editor for the Journal of Environmental Psychology. And one final note before we begin. Uh, Though Dr. Heft and I share a lot of common ground, he is not coming on as an endorsement for any of the exotic material that I have presented uh, prior to this episode. Uh, He is doing me a solid, essentially. He's a nice guy, and he's coming on in good faith, and I appreciate him for that. Having said that, we spoke for about an hour before we even had this conversation, And we wanted to do that to make sure that it would be a good idea and that we would would have some things to talk about. And so I think uh, you're going to find this conversation interesting. I think you're going to find the material relevant to what we've talked about before. And um, with all that said, I I hope you enjoy it. And here's the conversation. Dr. Heff, thank you for joining me today. Uh, I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate you coming on and indulging me for for a little while. Happy to be here. Um, we talked earlier, uh, and I mentioned I'd like to start with a quote from uh, from the book "Spell of the Sensuous." Um, and so I'll just start with that, and and we'll get right into it. Humans are tuned for relationship: the eyes, the skin, the tongue ears and nostrils all are gates where our body receives the nourishment of otherness this landscape of shadowed voices these feathered bodies and antlers and tumbling streams these breathing shapes are our family the beings with whom we are engaged with whom we struggle and suffer and celebrate for the largest part of our species existence humans have negotiated relationships with every aspect of the sensuous surroundings, exchanging possibilities with every flapping form, 
with each textured surface and shivering entity that we happen to focus upon. The color of the sky, the rush of waves, every aspect of the earthly sensuous could draw us into a relationship, fed with curiosity and spiced with danger. How does um, ecological psychology and this sort of soulful emphasis on experience and nature, how do these things uh, play together for you? Right. Well, one of the things I take from that passage you just read is that living things are, um, are open to the surround. They're open to the environment that they're they're located in and 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 that um that's absolutely necessary because um well for for two reasons um you know one just at a basic biological level we, we need to we need to um able to take in resources from the environment even at the cellular level we have to take in resources from the environment otherwise uh this the system will um deteriorate that is to say you know you know experience uh what's called entropy it'll become more disorganized over time so living things during their lifespan uh, they don't become less organized but they become at least they maintain a stability or they become more organized which means that they have to be open uh to the to the world around them to the environment and um, that's kind of describing the point biologically. Putting the point more psychologically, it's that organisms need to become aware of their surround and need to be aware of, of the resources. And, and this gets back to this quotation you read from Abrams. Um, those resources are in the world around us and we, we, we pick those up, we detect those through our sensory, various sensory systems. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so now the one one feature of ecological psychology, which is implicit in all of that, is that organisms are not passive. They're not stationary. It's not that the world merely comes in to, to organisms, but organisms also engage the world. And so there's this reciprocity between living things and the environment. Um, and so... Ecological psychology, it basically emphasizes that reciprocity between living things and the environment, and also emphasizes that organisms are active. They actively engage the world. Right. So there's a relationship, but it's a it's an interested relationship. I have things that I need in my relationship to the world and try to tune myself to them. Yeah, yeah. Although I'm going to set aside need for just a minute um it, and i would like to say sort of the the prototype um psychological process i think is is touching you need to you need to touch you feel things around you you need to be able to sort of is is am, am i running into a solid surface is this surface supportable and so on and uh, you you become aware of the properties of of, of the physical surfaces through actions and and by being aware of those you become aware of what you can do with respect to them i think that's a beautiful brings beautiful imagery to my mind of almost like a child trying to reach around and touch the world around it and we could almost 
look at the species doing that as well as coming to understand and regulate itself in in an environment uh right different different stimuli yeah i mean and the most one of the most basic features of any living thing even is a single cell is motility so if you look at like paramecium i mean they they're swimming around and they're in the, the liquid medium that they're in but they're swimming around in order to um detect properties, resources that have value for our their um, continuing life. Yeah. Now, what's now to, to emphasize ecological psychology? It isn't only about vision, but that's that's mostly what ecological psychologists have focused on. So let me just sort of bump up the point I just made to the area of re, of vision. Um, for um, for your listeners, you should you should know that for um, for centuries, the way in which vision has been talked about is that uh, light comes into the organism and the organism makes sense of it somehow. And, and typically, causal mechanistic way. Yeah, and it's typical and light typically in, in in the form of images. Now, notice that describing vision in terms of just receiving images or light leaves out the action part of it so again let's reinvoke the notion of touch as our model well vision also involves moving around in the world and detecting properties of the world but the properties of the world um, in the case of vision unlike touch are are properties that are conveyed in reflected light light off of surfaces is structured by those surfaces and by moving around um, we can detect that structure so to, to be a little less abstract I mean just imagine yourself walking into a room and there's an object sitting on the table that you don't immediately recognize well, well what do you do if, if what you do is you start walking or moving around it you might walk closer to it or you might you know walk to the right or walk to the left I mean you're moving kind of in the same way that if you encounter something with your hand and you don't know identify what the object is you move your hand around the surface so so visual perception like touch and and um is 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 an is an active process it involves the organism reaching into the environment and engaging the environment what's different about ecological psychology and, and again I want to emphasize this to people uh, who are new to it is it radically changes how we think about vision again for centuries and really going back millennia the way that vision has been thought about is that it's, we, we just the world comes into us what ecological psychology does uh, and it's based on some other earlier ideas which we could talk about is that it says vision is not merely just receiving what's out there, but it's also engaging the world so we can more readily perceive what's out there. So going the object on the table, you might not identify immediately, but by moving around, you begin to recognize its distinctive qualities. Mm. That through through act, your action, you can you can detect the the structure in the medium in this case the medium of light i guess yeah and yeah and, and i very much like the uh the analogy in your book 
of the drum because I'm a musician and I loved that you said that the the air waves preserve the structure of of the solid the it is the drum that's vibrating and then the vibration of the air is preserving structure and then through yeah. action and through moving around we can um we can uh, get a better a better feel for what it, whatever it is that's bringing us that sound but yeah. see look yeah. I, I did it with my language though i said it bringing us the sound and i'm kind of it's so it's so hard to to get away from that language of we are the receivers of the world well in in i mean in a way we are but but that's only part of the story so let, let's go back to the drum and 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 maybe let's go back to something like a pair of tuning forks you know you you sort of, you strike one tuning fork and then presumably the the adjacent tuning fork if it's constructed properly will will vibrate in the same frequency as the first tuning fork well how does that happen well before before i think we know how that happens but before answering that that's kind of the same problem that people have struggled with in the case of vision it's like when i'm looking at the world how does the, the thing out in the world get into my head how does it get into my eye and 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 the way it does is through a medium so the tuning fork vibrates and that vib and the vibrations in the air, you know, initiate you know, a resonance in the adjacent tuning fork. In other words, there's a medium between the two. If you, if you had two tuning forks in absolute space where there was no density between them, nothing, then there's no medium. You wouldn't get, you wouldn't get that resonance. You need a medium. You need something that has some density, like air, to carry um, the wave uh, the waveforms. Similarly, in the case of vision, how do we figure out how things out there get into our head? And what the great step forward in ecological psychology was was to, is to say, well, there's a medium for vision too. Objects don't just cross between the perceiver and the object in a vacuum, but that. But what's between them is a medium, and the medium is is the, the density of the air which carries light. Mm -hmm. And what it carries in the light is 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 some structure. And I could we could go into more detail, but basically the the, the resonance model you know works perfectly well in the case of vision as it does for hearing. What you have to include in there is the medium. If you don't have that, you don't have perceiving. That's very interesting, and that would present a problem um for for extending ecological psychology to something like and i know this is not where we're going to focus for our conversation but something like psychical phenomenon that william james was interested in because well, that's this, right there's this search for a medium something in time and space and the experience itself um seems to for the the percipient to transcend time and space and with without a medium so that the the um the search in parapsychology, for example, has been for something like some kind of a way to explain uh, in, in a way that that doesn't rely on on that. Yeah, no, that, I think that's that's exactly right. However, before I make my next statement, I I want to claim I'm a skeptic about sure. parapsychology. However, what we do know is is that we've Prior to Einstein, we thought about space as being kind of this empty vacuum, this void. 
And what relativity theory has shown us is that in fact, all living things are embedded in a space, in a, what Einstein called a space-time continuum. So maybe there, so I'm not gonna advocate for parapsychology, but maybe there is a medium, you know, and, and if one was interested in that subject, you might sort of look more closely at how modern day physics talks about space-time. I'm sure. not gonna go there. No, right. That's gonna that's gonna lead us down quite a rabbit hole. But I You're do I do think that it does uh it does highlight something else that we are gonna talk about, which is the the science is a continuing conversation. Right. Um and then the nature of certainty and all those things. And maybe to pivot there, um, we could begin with a discussion of, and you've touched on it a lot already, of the emergent science of living systems and the older science of inanimate systems. Right. Why is why is there this clash where you know we are tempted to frame ourselves in the inanimate way as we are containers? separate from the environment with these right. harsh boundaries between subjects and objects. Could, could we talk a little bit about this problem? Yeah. 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 I mean, the, a, a major change in thinking began in the, in, in the 1800s um, in that it, it, it's pretty apparent that living things and non-living things are different. Uh, but why are they different? And I, I alluded to it earlier, that sort of, things in, in, in nature just become disorganized over time. They fall apart. And, if, you know, if, if you just think about sort of, a, 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 you know, a rock or, a, or, or a, a cliff face, over time, it'll it'll erode and fall apart and, 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 and become less organized. What's, um, what's unique about living things is that doesn't seem to happen, at least during their lifespan. They do have a finite lifespan, and they do, and then they do fall apart. But during the lifespan, they they become they they maintain an organization. They're self-sustaining, uh, and and in fact, they they can become complex. So um, that change came all came about in the 19th century, when folks began to talk about a top uh, the subject matter of thermodynamics, which is about how energy is either preserved or not. So living things kind of take in sources of energy and they use it to sustain themselves and non-living things don't. Okay, so then, then we get to the diff a difference between non-living things and living things, which is what we said at the very outset is that therefore living things have to have a sort of an openness to the world around them. And a rock doesn't need to be open mm -hmm. to the world around it. We're making but the living plant, thing. But a plant does. And an animal does, and so it's the the, the we the, the reason why we can't be containers is because we need to be semi-open to the surround in order to sustain our existence and to become more complex, and even to reproduce. So the other thing about living things, which I, we haven't mentioned yet, is that a rock will not beget another rock. You know it. But living things actually sustain themselves over time, not necessarily by living infinitely, but rather by having offspring. So, so again, we're sustaining energy over time as opposed to non-living things, which seem to run down. 
that's uh that's that's really it's almost like we're more like patterns than objects well yeah we have to be structured in 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 certain ways and uh, um let's say again a rock doesn't need to retain its structure it's it, it in fact it won't over time um but um a living thing mean, main, needs to maintain its structure uh and it does so by ingesting nutrients and and so on. And psychologically, we sustain our structure by engaging, encountering new information, and so on. Yeah. That um, so, the part of the 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 work of ecological psychology, I guess, then is to to present or adapt a model to that that sort of flexibility and that uh, constant process and energy exchange that right. we see in living systems. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh and, and actually there's a there's a there's a new, there's a huge field that's developed over the past half century called dynamical systems theory. And so it's the assumptions of dynamical systems theory are, is, are what ecological psychology certainly embrace. What's the difference between the two? Well, dynamical systems theory is not necessarily just about psychological questions. It's about any kind of system. A living system, um, but um, but ecological psychology, as the the last word in that indicates, is about human life. Mm -hmm. Not that it doesn't have continuity with non-human forms of life, but we're concerned about human life. Um, just that's just our focus. A special, it's a special kind of complex system, right? Yeah, the living yeah, exactly. system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if we were interested in another organism, like I've become very interested in recent months in beavers, because I think they're like this, they're amazing in terms of their how they sustain the environments and so on. But then I, I would not necessarily be an ecological psychologist, because psychology is about the study of humans, I'd be, you know, an ecological um, zoologist, if you will. Yeah. So ecological, that term just means our focus on the surround of the living thing. And and that happens at scale too. So that's another Absolutely. part of the of the the, the lens. Is it's a lens of of a particular scale. Absolutely. Yeah. It it changes it's it, it, it right. We can look at it at a different scale. So all this really came about, you know, be, beginning in the 19th century. Uh and it's very much transformed um the sciences. And uh, particularly the sciences of organisms, as opposed to cells or uh, smaller um, living systems. How does this extra human piece of intentionality and selectivity of attention and these things that we that we see in, in more complex living forms like human beings um, and arguably uh, lower forms as well? How does that and evolutionary theory fit into this story? Yeah, well, that's a really good and, and deep question. Um, so I, I, you know, what what distinguishes humans from other animals? Well, I'm, I'll use a ter I, I'll use a term here, but I have to you know, define it in, the, in more clearly. But humans live in culture. And, and re we require a cultural surround in order to um, develop as humans. Now, 
does that mean that other animals don't have culture? Well, I mean, they kind of do. I mean, you can. there's a lot of ways in which we can talk about it, but I, I want to just say that culture involves um, not only the making of artifacts and tools, which a lot of, a lot of or other organisms do, but also that humans live in systems of meaning and, and, and symbols. So, um, and so we'd have to understand what culture in a human sense means and where it comes from. And where it comes from, it, it, obviously these are really complicated questions, but where it comes from is the following, that if, if a child, and, and this is, can be just a hypothetical, but in fact, there were some real cases of this studied long ago. If, if a child grows up in, without any other humans around it, they, they don't develop into a recognizably human creature. I mean, they. I mean, they're, so there, there are these. There's these famous, at least one famous case of a child who was discovered pretty late in childhood, who didn't appear to grow up around humans. Probably, he, he, although there's no way of knowing, it was pro he was probably cared for by other organisms, animals in its environment. But it, it obviously it, it didn't learn language. It, it didn't learn how to interact with other humans. It had a pretty limited social repertoire. So could it develop, so did it have culture? Probably not in the way that I defined it earlier. So one of the things that we know, and, and I'm gonna talk about evolution in a minute, is that human beings need to develop around other human beings. We can't develop into adequate human functioning beings without an early, early life among other human beings. But that is to say, we're, when we're born, we're sort of unfinished neurologically, and uh, and and it's only in those fir that first period of time where notice that we're we're born with a brain that's still developing, and our brain then develops over the first few years of life in conjunction with our interaction with other human beings, and that's how we become human. Um, you can get a puppy, and we all, we've all had many, most of us experienced it. You can get a puppy, and they can, they'll develop in all sorts of interesting ways, but they're not going to acquire language, and they're not going to. They're not. They're, there's an exchange of signals and so on, but there's. They're also not going to be able to function. Um, they can function. Yeah, they won't function in as cultural beings as humans do. Um, so let's get into. So what, the couple of things that we we know is that. Um, well, how does that evolution fit in here? It, it means that there must be an organism, a human organism, that is born relatively immature neurologically, but requires others, social others, to kind of finish the development off through development. Now, this is true somewhat with primates, but not, not to the same degree. And uh, and by the way, that there there were many other species. So humans are Homo sapiens, right? But there are many species of Homo that existed previously. They're now all extinct. The the one that everyone would be familiar with is Neanderthal, but there were really many many others. And so um, there's this huge gap between Homo as a species and and the varieties of 
uh, species within Homo, and primate and primates, non-human animals. So there's this so the enormous difference we see between humans and primates is that um, there were you know, long periods of time when there were various types of species of Homo which were trying to develop, and uh, and part of that was the uh, more complex culture and environments and so on. So yeah, so one of, we've learned so much in the past 100 years, one of which is that you know we're we're just the last remaining species of, 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 of Homo. And, and um, yeah, so, so we look radically different and seem radically different from other organisms, but that's because the, the species that preceded us are, and even not just preceded it, but lived when we lived, Neanderthal lived when we lived. Um, there's, um, there's, there's Homo Denisovan, who have been studied, discovered in the past couple of decades. They lived when we lived, but we're the only ones left. Now, why is that? Well, the simplest answer is that, but I don't know if it's accurate, is that we're hyper aggressive, you know, and and the and and, we, and the others didn't survive relative to us. The other answer, which is probably more accurate, is that our species is extraordinarily adaptable, and so we can live in in very different climates, and we can net, we can migrate from one place to another. And other organisms haven't. I'm talking about human organisms, um, primates. I'm not I'm leaving leaving birds out of here, and other migrating species. And uh, and then, but why was it the case that Homo sapiens live in different places and can um, and can migrate over long places? And now we get back to the where I started a minute ago, because we we can cooperate with one another, we can work together with one another. And where does that come from? That comes from the early years of developing among among other human beings. That's that's really profoundly interesting, and I'm sort of drawn back to something that you said earlier about symbols and meaning the world of symbols and meaning and i i am tempted to say and i don't even think it's an analogy that the human being requires in the same way and is influenced in the same way by trees and oxygen and sunlight as by symbols that the world of symbols is as real and as instrumental in the development of a human as yeah. you know say a particular kind of a bush you know yeah um, the case i the, the case i described earlier the very famous case um it's often described as there's a book called the wild boy of avrion and it was a boy he was found in the is in the 1700s around the time of the french revolution and he seemed to have not developed early on around humans so the big question at the time among scientists and philosophers then is well then can we teach this kid language and they couldn't i mean they tried they tried mightily but the, but they couldn't he, he he had he developed some rudiments of language but he didn't really fully develop language and the question is well why not because he couldn't broadly speaking think symbolically hmm. he couldn't think cognitively he couldn't cognize with the use of symbols and again symbolic thinking it develops in those early years when you're interacting with other human beings. So and, if, if you, you know, 
for those of you who've seen children, you know, in the company of adults, you, you see all kinds of interaction going on. And the kids are acquiring what things mean and they acquire language and so on. The uh, the wild boy of Avrion didn't have that early experience. So he basically couldn't subsequently become fully human, if you will. Right. You, you mentioned the the adaptability of humans before and maybe as maybe being an advantage. And part of that adaptability seems to me to be this ability to attune to elements of the real, which other species cannot, and the real in the broadest sense. And in this case, we include the real to include symbols from beginning from gestures to to uh, you know higher, more complicated forms of symbols and, and whatever else might be out there, quote unquote. Yeah. Well, if I can just fine tune what you said just a little bit. Yes, sir. I mean, all organisms need to engage the real. Because they need to be sensitive to and, and, and need to adjust to circumstances in their immediate environment. It's just that in the case of humans, part of the real, and actually, and, and for a lot of organisms, part of the real is also the communication between one another. And so, uh, I mean, we know with birds, for example, birds you know, acquire song and they, and they can identify songs as being part of their own group. And uh, and so part of the real is in, involved in communication, and human communication uh, depends not completely, but to a larger measure on symbolic communication. Right. Right. So um, and so, in for for humans, part of the real is our symbols and meaning. Yeah. Um, shifting notice, gears. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. One other one other yes, thing, sir. notice that you have to you have to acquire it. So, for let's take something like literacy. Human beings don't aren't born and just naturally learn how to read. They have to be taught how to read, and they have to be provided with resources by those around them to acquire the skill of reading. And that and reading is a completely you know pure symbolic form of communication. So you can see that there's a case in which um, written texts um, have to you know, have to be available for you know for young for young people at an early age. Notice that someone who hasn't acquired literacy early in life, they can acquire it later, but it's really difficult. If you look, if you're trying to learn to read in your 30s and 40s, it can happen, but it's not easy. It can happen pretty easily early in life, and uh, and. And, and so being connected to the social world also requires that you can, you can think and read and communicate symbolically. There's a, an interesting tangent, which I won't take us all the way down, but I'm, I'm reminded of it uh, in a very strong way. So I'm just going to mention it. And this is the experience mathematicians often have of perceiving a world that is somehow there uh, prior to being taught what it is and this encountering of we could call it a platonic realm or something like that and there's this is a long-standing argument you know a, a debate about what is there and what is not but it does it, it is very tempting to bring the notion of attunement to this this idea as well um i don't know if you have any thoughts on that yeah only that um i th i think what what we and really most living organ complex organisms uh, detect are patterns. Mm. 
you know, or, or structures. Um, and, um, and so mathematical thinking is really thinking in terms of patterns and structures. And some people are particularly adept at, and, and, but they're abstract. They're terribly abstract. And some people are really good at detecting at those abstract structures. But, but I was thinking earlier, um, but before we talked, what example could I give to, to listeners about what it is to detect a structure? And I'll give you the following. If you've ever been around a little kid, you know this. When a little kid sort of discovers a light switch, and you might notice that once they discover, if they, they can flip this light switch and, and, and cause this light to go on. I mean, they do it continuously. Okay. Endlessly. Now, what, what's happening there? Because in, in, in adult language, what they've discovered is a structure, a relationship between that action and this occurrence in the environment around them. Right. I mean, who would think that this little switch on the wall would have anything to do with this lamp across the room? <laughs> but it's, it's a delight when kids see that, no, there is a connection. They're related. That's an example of a structure. So I, so, so I just wanted to offer that as just a very concrete example. That That's all beautiful. That's really beautiful. I love that because you can extend that to so many types of things and just our natural exploratory attitude towards having an experience and trying to understand what was that? What was, and then, and then you could be yeah. like the, the superstitious chicken who, uh, accidentally hits the, you know, the button in his cage to deliver food. And then, continues to do that action of flapping its wings not understanding that there's a button right just flapping yeah. its wings hoping for the food to magically appear yeah yeah i mean if you're well if you if you if you've been around an infant and you have an infant let's say in, in some kind of an infant seat and, and they start suddenly start banging on the tray with its spoon well what is that about well it's discovering a relationship between this action with this object and this surface so again, it's it's about discovering regularities, mm -hmm. and I think all living things do that. They, they they sort of look for patterns, they look for regularities. Yeah. So if we're talking about mathematics, which is way at the other <laughs> end of complexity, I think it's still the same thing. It's just a terribly abstract, yes, uh, and complex structure. Yes, I, and I love. I just love if we could just continue with this image of the child as I kind of run into this next question and this fits so well and it's part of your book also which is you know William James very interested in discovering the nature of the real and and he's also very interested in doing that through experience so we could hold this image of the child and his experience trying to find relationships this uh emphasis on experience though can seem counterintuitive because we think of science as somehow fixing our experience or cleansing our experience we're detached from experience via science and the or the scientific method um how is it that James comes to believe and that and that many people today come to believe that experience is essential for understanding what science is and epistemology and the search for truth right well but before respond to that it's important for english-speaking listeners to understand <laughs> that the word experience has two very different meanings and it gets really confusing so, because um in whereas in other languages like in german there's two different words for what i'm about to say we sometimes use the word experience as referring to past experience 
oh, like I took this trip last week or I went over to see someone. So that was what I experienced. But the other meaning of experience is, is what I'm what, what I'm confronted with now. Like this is this is this is a really delicious meal, or this is something that seems uh, very confusing, or I'm not sure what I'm looking at. That's another form of experience. It doesn't refer to what's happened in the past, but it refers to what I'm in, what's happening right now, what's there. Yeah. So I, I apologize. I kind of confused. That, that didn't help before earlier. So what James, so what James wants to say is that, and really most philosophers begin is to say we, we begin by being aware of that we're in we're confronted with something. You know, we're in we're in either the world, or some philosophers have argued we're most aware of our own thinking. Um, what, what James wants to say, William James wants to say, is that we're we experience something that's there. Mm -hmm. Something hard, something soft, something loud, something bright. And then in, in further engaging it, we have a, try to get a, a clearer sense of what that thing is. So yes. let's say, go back to the child on the in the high chair. So there, there's this loud, it's flailing its arms around and suddenly there's this loud noise. And it's like, what's that? What is that experience? And it's like, oh, it happens whenever I sort of grab the spoon and I move my arm such that the spoon comes in contact with the tray, oh, I can produce that experience. It's it's not just something that happened, but I actually did it myself. And so in, in the course of, of development, we all learn how to affect change in the world and, and really have create new experiences for ourselves, new in the sense that arising from an interaction with the environment that yeah. is uh so, yeah that's so you're beautiful at, you're at a you're at a keyboard now and you know sometimes in, and maybe you're, some of your listeners are too sometimes you know you're sort of typing away and suddenly something weird happens on the screen it's like what did i do what keys did i hit on the keyboard that caused that to happen yeah i mean so that's the experience like what's that and then how did it come about what am i what actions of mine produced that that's kind of what James is talking about when, when he's talking about the nature of uh, uh, cognitive development. So a th in that view, to a, a theory, a scientific theory that I then develop after the fact using my tools, say I bring a tool of logical formalisms and mathematics to yeah. whatever experience I've been confronted with, whatever I build there in this model, it still is never the experience, right? The two are all are always there's a difference between the two things the um, one being a model for predicting future experiences and the other being what i am situated in yeah yeah but 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 let's let's take an example so okay. one experience that we've had and all people have had is that the, the sun goes down below the horizon at the end of the day and it becomes dark well, well, that's kind of, you experience that. Now, the science, the next step in science is, well, why did that happen? And, and, why did this, and why does the sun reappear again, you know, later on? And is it the same sun? And, you know, what causes all this? So the experience is the same in each case. You see the sunset and the sunrise. But then how do we explain, explain that? 
And so one explanation we could offer is that the earth is stable and, and static, it doesn't move. And the sun kind of goes around the earth. And that view held for a really long time until other things that were observed, like, like other bodies in the sky, like that what we call now planets, which seem to appear and then go out of sight again and come back again. And over time, what happened is that experience was explained not in terms of a stationary earth and all these things going around the earth, but in fact, the earth is moving around and, and, and relatively speaking, the sun is stationary. So the experience is the same, but the explanation changes, okay? And that's what science does really. It begins with an observation and then tries to account for it. And, um, and we realize that some explanations like the sun going around the earth seem to work pretty well. But later on we find, oh, but this other explanation is even a better one. Because it not only explains that, but it explains a lot of other things too. So science is progressive. The most important thing about science is it's self-corrected, it correcting if it's working properly. Because you try to develop different models, different explanations for some phenomenon. Yeah. So uh the idea of let's see this uh, there's a couple of directions I'm pulled in. Um one direction is that you know we tried to criticize the newtonian view and yet we are so um captivated by those newtonian examples they fit so nicely with the way that we seem to be perceiving the world in terms of objects and getting and grasping things and here's this round object going around this other round object and and it's so we it is in one sense of it's a very nice model and it seems we're tempted to think of it as, as absolute truth where does the the frame of our pragmatic turn come in here? And is there an is there something with evolution to say uh, about about science and certainty and and uh, um, I don't know how, how do these ideas play together at least for James and then maybe for us? Yeah. Well, um, you, you know, I, I I admire dog as dogs as much as the next person. Okay. But but I doubt, and my my late dog, who, who I love dearly, I doubt whether he ever contemplated where the sun's going <laughs> and why is it coming back, and 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 I doubt whether he contemplated, you know, was how do I explain this phenomenon? He just saw the the sun go down and knew it got dark. So humans, you know, kind of are, are think in terms, try to offer explanations for things that they experience. And those explanations um, can change over time as better explanations come on board. Yeah, um, and um, and my, my dog would, would never have sort of revised a, a belief system because I don't think he had a belief system in the first place, which isn't to say that he wasn't wonderful in all kinds of other ways. So humans sort of try to develop explanations for phenomena, things that they see, and what, what one has to understand about science is that there, there's nothing permanent about those explanations. In fact, you're really a bad scientist if you think your explanation is permanent and fixed. No scientist would ever believe that a certain view is permanent and fixed. 
what a scientist would believe is that this is the best explanation we have right now. We don't have a better one right now, but we know a better one could come along. And if a better one comes, and if a better one comes along, if you're a, a scientist, you have to be willing to give up the old beliefs. That lens is um is much more palatable through the other mm -hmm. lens, the comp the, the complementary lens of of evolution. Just for me, because it just it helps with the the idea of constraints, animal constraints. Uh, uh, and that's what we are. We are, you know, organisms wrestling with, and, and we don't have to make any ultimate statements about the nature of reason or logic and mathematics. If we can, if we can kind of humbly rest in this animal frame while we attempt to grapple with experience in the world. It, for me personally, it takes away that temptation to make the train, the claims of, of fixed truths that yeah. forever encapsulate nature. Yeah, I mean, the, the big change with modern science, and by modern science, I mean, beginning in the, maybe the 1700s, 1800s, is the realization that uh, things that we might assume to be fixed and permanent, it, at least our understanding of them, is changeable. It, we need to revise those. Um, and uh, as a better explanation comes along. Now, what counts for a better explanation? That would be a reasonable question. Why is this new explanation better than the old one? And the answer is it, it, it enables you to make better predictions of what's gonna happen next. And it enables you to explain what's, yeah, what, what's happening. So, um, yeah, so, so uh, explanations allow you to better understand the nature of things and uh and then the and so yeah so like just take any well the the, the discovery of genes i mean we, we you know for most of human existence we we knew that offspring of of, of humans had, had qualities that that look like the, the parent the ch children have qualities that look like the parent but how do you explain that and it took centuries to figure out that there's this structure pretty, you know, in the in cells, which convey properties which enable the offspring to take on some qualities of the parent, although an environment is absolutely necessary. So I don't want to be a strong genetic determinist here. But notice that the, the idea of genes that's going to be familiar to everybody listening, presumably, even in a very basic sense, that idea didn't exist. Um, hundred years ago or a little over a hundred years ago right and so it's just that we know there's some invisible structure under there we don't know what it is that is leading to this similarity between mom and dad and son yeah you know, we know something but we have no idea what and we just right no idea and and an people did offer and people did offer various explanations and and, and i can tell you a few but um but but in fact, they've all been abandoned when the, when the understanding of gene and genes tra transmission became understood. And and actually, we're still learning about genes. I mean, we, we've only just scratched the surface. So it, again, it's an example how science offers explanations, but those explanations are advisable, revisable as we learn new things. Could it's we... Not, um... mm -hmm. Sorry, I, I just wanted to know if we could shift just a little bit to radical empiricism. Yeah. Um, 
which is a little distinct from where we're going in, in philosophy of science, uh, but still related. Uh, maybe we could preserve this image again of this, the child and the light switch. I love that. And, and, or anything, any phenomena really and and radical empiricism and, and relational truths, you know, what, what's, what's William James getting at with this radical empiricism? Yeah. Well, the light switch is, is, is helpful here because the the child can okay so let me let me go back several centuries i don't need to name drop philosophers but an important philosopher in, in the 1700s you know thought that well how do we how do we understand causal relationships how do we understand that a causes b and his argument was well that's just the way the mind works we tend to sort of impose causal structure on things that we can see what James objected to that, and he said, no, we actually experience causal relationships, like in the case of the light switch. I mean, we can we can we can create and we can make an event occur. And you can see experience the relationship between the action and the outcome. So historically, what folks mostly looked at is there was the light switch separate and there was the light going on separate. And somehow we thought that they were related because our brains try, tend to link these things. What James says, no, no, you actually see, experience this sequence of events. And, um, and so it's detecting the relations between events. And another word for relations is structure, which is what we were talking about just five minutes ago, that you know we're, we're detecting the structure of, of an event we, we we bang the spoon on the top of the um the um high chair and um and we see that this this the relation of this action to the surface produces a sound so james's influence emphasis was on the fact that we actually detect these relationships through experience around us mm. so james uh I guess was not uh, like Pierce who came before him. It was not as uh, maybe not as sympathetic to Kant, at least uh, with right. that, with respect to that. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Kant is the person I, I it went unmentioned earlier. I figured, I figured I didn't want to argue over Kant because Kant's kind of, I do have a soft spot for him, but I do oh, also no, he, am sympathetic he, to this argument. Yeah. No, <clears throat> Kant was brilliant. He was one of the great thinkers of, of, the, of you know, of the last cent several centuries. And, and what Kant was asking is, you know, where do some of the basic things that we discover, where do they come from? Where does the our idea of causality or the idea of space or the idea of time, where do they come from? And not to oversimplify Kant, but it basically he, it, his, his point was, well, that's just the way humans think. We think in causal terms and temporal terms and spatial terms. What's different about James, and, and there were several people along the way whose ideas he built on, was that, no, actually, these ideas of causality and space and time are things that we discover through our experience. And and, and he offered some hypotheses as to how that happens. Could we, um, maybe you don't see it as directly related, but I, I thought I'd throw it in and see what you think, that you mentioned in the idea in your book, the the idea of um, there being no, if we look at reality in terms of, you know, this hierarchical structure levels of organization, rather, that there's no fundamental level of cause. Could we maybe, do you think, could we, would this be a good place to elaborate on that idea? 
Yeah, I, well, one of the things that most scientists agree on, I, I think all scientists agree on, is that is that the world around us is 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 structured in terms of different levels or different patterns. So think about again. I'm going back to a, a child's toy, but think about like boxes that are nested with inside boxes. You can give the child a bunch of boxes and one fits into another and another one fits into that and so on. Well, it seems that the, the reality is structured that way too. There, there are these different levels of structure. So if we want to study um, humans, we can sort of look at the human as a, as a whole organism. But if I want to understand you know, some parts of human functioning, I might want to go down to a level of biology or even cellular biology, like as we discussed before, uh, genetics. So th there, are, for any given phenomenon, there might be a better or worse level of explanation that's appropriate, that's, that's best to follow. Mm -hmm. So if I wanted, if I thought that, and some people kind of be, believe this, if you think that everything everything you need to know about humans you can discover by by studying genes, some people you know would make that argument. Others, and 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 I I wouldn't make that argument. Others would say that you also, not not instead of, but also have to understand operations at a at a higher order level, like yes. the whole individual in the environment. So yes. there. Now, why would I ask that question rather than the question about um, about genes, it's, it's just the question that I'm interested in as a scientist. Right. The question that you're asking sort of dictates the level of re, of structure that you want to focus on. And that gets us out of reductionism that we get stuck in. And, and we could we could look at uh, that example of the beaver. You know, you mentioned being interested in the beaver earlier. Uh, that in addition to inheriting the genes, the beaver also inherits the dam, right? And so. This is part of the story of evolution. It isn't just this one-way deterministic thing. It is there is a, there's more to the story. It's a, a reciprocity of causation. Yeah, that's that's a really really important point, and it's something only surprisingly folks have been sort of emphasizing in the past thirty years that what organisms inherit from their parents in many cases, not all organisms, but is what the, what the parent has done to the environment. They've created a dam, they've created a nest, you know, they've, and, 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 uh, and, and so what's passed on from parent to offspring is not just genes, but also an environment that right. the parent has altered and changed. Right. And that's very much transformed how we've been thinking about evolution in the last 20 years or so. Right, that it's a complex story. If anyone wants to read more about that point, it, it comes under the heading usually of niche construction, like mm -hmm. ecological niche. And that the study of niche construction has been is, is really very exciting. You so, um yeah. So notice that you... each of you, each each of us is born, but we're we're not born into a world that's devoid of features. You're born into an a, an environment, a culture, a home tools that uh, that you learn to utilize right 
And therapy is a big, uh, you know, obviously notices that first, if you ever go to therapy, they're going to talk to you about, you know, what was the world of, of reality that you were born into. And then yeah. talk about the, the acquired values and a, a developmental, you know, uh, story right. and, and all that good stuff. And, and, um, if, and if any of the listeners want an example of that, just think about how smarter the younger kids are around you about technology than you are right why are they so good at that and, and you're still kind of clumsy well because you've only picked it up in the last 10 or 15 years and you've already and you are already almost a fully formed person right and so and that's, learning, that's it. learning it when their brain is mo brain is most plastic is when they're yeah. learning it but notice they've learned it because we have left these tools around for them to learn on I mean, little kids right. didn't develop develop the software and the hardware. I mean, somebody else did. So we're all so it's sort of like a beaver, you know, finding a dam that that its its parents have left, or a bird finding a nest that its parent has constructed. We have this technology that we leave around for our kids, and uh, and to live into. And why do they have to learn how to use them? Because to to live adaptively in the society. If we're talking about Western society. Um, you have to learn how to deal with its technology. Right. But us old people, and, and I'm I'm older than you, you know, I'm not good at it. I mean, because I've had to learn it late in life. Whereas kids are kids I encounter are are, are wizards. <laughs> They're great. Yeah. I think um maybe that uh, could also lead us. I love I love the continuing examples with kids and and plasticity there and this it's so it's such a rich field of analogies there maybe to kind of bring us towards a close because i've already stolen you longer than i said i would um that we, we're talking about how you can become maybe less sensitive to parts of reality so we use the example of technology i'm a little older so i'm i'm not as sensitive to elements of of that you know as i might be and we could extend sensitivity and reality to, you know, the nature of, or to uh, problems like meaning and symbols. Um, what I like about ecological psychology is it, it, it seems to emphasize a flexibility and an openness uh, to viewing the world. And, and so that we don't shut down elements of, of the real, uh, that right. we, we don't make unnecessary amputations. Yeah. Do you feel like that's a good that's a good interpretation of what your your lens is? Yeah, and and it also points to why it's really based in sort of an evolutionary approach, because part of uh, let me talk about evolution quickly and then ecological psychology. I mean, one of the things about evolution that was critical, in 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 this preceded Darwin, is the discovery that the Earth is constantly changing. You know, th that it's not a static environment, that the earth is changing due to all sorts of natural forces. And therefore, organisms that live on earth must adapt to those changes. So you, if, if you keep acting as if the world hasn't changed, it, it's, it's maladaptive. <laughs> you, you know, you're just not going to do very well. And the same thing now, let me hop back to technology, love it or, or hate it. Our, our world is filled with technology, and if, if you want to function within it um, effectively, um, you need to adapt to it. Or you can sort of go, you, know, you can go off the grid, and that's okay too. But 
you know, there's limits to that. That sort of constrains the things that you can do, which might be fine. But uh, yeah, but you're not going to you're not going to shop on Amazon if you're off the grid. And maybe that's a good thing. But, <laughs> and, but, but notice it's the same. It's, it's really the, it's the evolution. It's the notion that the environment is always changing and organisms need to adapt to that environment in order to function efficiently and effectively in it. Yeah. And then to tie this back up to what we were talking about earlier, science, and therefore our understanding of that world is going to change because we have better explanations for the ones we held previously. The old ideas work pretty well, but now that the world's changed, we really need to revamp our, our ideas. Mm -hmm. And so, and our ideas better of better is always related to, to our action and to how helpful the ideas are as opposed to yeah an ap an absolutely true status oh ab that, i mean that I mean, this is a really good point to kind of end on is that the, the it, what's important about uh, we didn't haven't used the word pragmatism too much but what's what's important about pragmatism is that what works is not fixed because the world around you is changing <laughs> so so what works in terms of your actions have to change in relationship to the world we find around us. Um, and um, the climate is changing. And then and the, and, and, so, and next generation, including if, if we have kids, are gonna have to figure out how to function adaptively in a changing world when food supply changes and all kinds of things are changing. It's so um it it's it's a dynamic process and animals have to change with it or they won't do very well the so human animal yeah and, and other and 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 we're getting huge species die-offs now with climate change because those organisms can adjust to the changes and, well, uh, and that may well happen to us well dr heft uh, i i'm really really grateful to you for coming on and uh this has been a super interesting conversation and and i hope uh i didn't annoy you too badly and and maybe one of these days uh, i can come knock on your door and do another one yeah no i, I enjoy talking to you um i'm i'm I've, i'm really impressed with um with your understanding of of these issues and uh yeah and i'd like to hear more about your ideas and let's let's continue to engage one another Thank you for thank you for that sir I take that as a compliment for sure All right guys thanks for joining us that wraps it up for today I'm going to leave you with a little dashboard confessional and for those of you who made it all the way through thank you and we'll continue the journey Just laying twines here undiscovered Shaking up from all the stupid questions Hey, did you get some? Man, that is so dumb